You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Tech Health Podcast. I have Toshi Shioda, Assistant Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. I'm going to be talking about biology and diseases of the human germline. So, Toshi, thank you for coming. How are you doing? Fine, thank you. How are you today? Good, good. So tell me, what um, what is your research involved? Okay. So uh, we are uh, generating uh, human primordial germ cells, PGCs, which is the uh, earliest precursor of all uh, germline cells, like sperm or uh, like eggs. Uh, so every uh, germline cells are coming uh, derived from the PGC, primordial germ cells. <laughs> And we are making the PGCs out of human IPS cells. You know that the uh, Yamanaka got Nobel Prize by converting, let's um, say, differentiated cells like uh, skin cells uh, into an IPS right. cells by deprogramming <coughs> uh, epigenetically. So what we are doing is uh, we generated IPS cells. Uh, following Yamanaka protocol, and then converting uh, that IPS cells into uh, PGC-like cells, uh, mainly uh, using a protocol uh, that my friend, Yekub uh, Hanna, uh, generated. And then we made a modification uh, so that uh, we can uh, generate uh, PGC-like cell culture model out of the conventional uh, IPS cells. The conventional in in terms uh, in terms that uh, IPS cells have uh, so-called primed status pluripotency versus naive status pluripotency. The primed status. Well, what's, the, what's the difference in those two? Yeah, what's prime yeah. versus naive? <laughs> yeah, so it is a um, important difference. So the primed means uh, it is uh, reflecting uh, pluripotency uh, in vivo resembling the epiblast cells, whereas naive pluripotency is resembling uh, inner cell mass. 
the difference in vivo is inner cell mass is totally uh, pluripotent, which means it can uh, go uh, differentiate into any lineage <coughs> of the fetuses, whereas uh, epiblast-like cells, epiblast has a pluripotency which is relatively limited uh, compared to the inner cell mass. And inner cell mass uh, pluripotency is characterized uh, with um, stronger degree of demonstration and uh, quite different uh, epigenetic profiles compared to the primed status. Unfortunately, sorry. Quick question here. So, okay, so just for listeners, because it's you know, getting technical, which is okay, but you're taking um, skin cells and then you're inducing pluripotency in them. And you're saying there's two kinds of pluripotency, prime and naive. And your goal is to create um, the progenitors of uh, eggs and sperms from uh, from these cells, right? That's correct. And then, and, and what, if, once you do that, though, what would they be used for? What are some of the possible uses if you do generate them? Okay, so it's a very good question. So, strictly speaking, uh, our research right now is limited towards or directing to generation of sperm or egg. However, I have uh, made an agreement with our uh, medical school and the hospital that uh, we are not trying to go through the production of a fertilization-ready sperm or the fertilization-ready egg. We stop before that, uh, which means uh, until the meiosis uh, happens, our research will be stopped before meiosis will be completed so that we will never accidentally generate uh, fertilization-ready sperm or egg. And then my own research background is I am uh, interested in the environmental effect to the germline. <laughs> so let's say there are many concerns such as if you have a very big uh, accident in the uh, atomic power plant or uh, some toxic materials have been spread and then you worry about the effect to your next generation your sons, your daughters, and right. granddaughters through the jam line. And then surprisingly, uh, the study is very, very limited. <laughs> and most of the data that we know about jam line came out of uh, mouse or rat, or those uh, small uh, animals. But recent studies show that the germline biology is quite different between human and those uh, laboratory uh, small traditional animals. And then, therefore, if you really want to know what may happen to human when they are exposed to bad radiation or the chemicals, one way, of course, you cannot do is uh, expose pregnant female woman and then ask for their fetuses to analyze their uh, germline in the fetuses, which is not possible. And then, therefore, we are trying to generate a primordial germ cell model in cell culture. Uh, and then we want to know how can we evaluate and eventually prevent uh, bad effects of the environment to the uh, next generations. <laughs> so then, you would be the perfect person to ask this question. So 
I've thought about this. You know, in humans, sperm are created every two days or so, right? Mm-hmm. But in a woman, supposedly in a woman, she is born with most or all of her eggs. So I would think the environmental effects on a woman's eggs would have a lot more time to take effect. You know, forget about exposure to radiation or toxins. What about just lifestyle and diet and stress over 30 years before a woman gives birth, for instance, versus a man going through those same stresses, but every two days, he has new sperm cells that may may be affected very differently than cells that have been around for 30 years. So what are your thoughts there? That's a great, great question. Thank you. So then, as you pointed that males uh, can regenerate almost entire uh, germline or sperm gener- spermatogenic, uh, spermatogenesis system <coughs> from the so-called uh, spermatogonial stem cell, SSC. And then, unless SSC is damaged, uh, you can uh, completely recover uh, at least the number of the sperm. Female is a different story. And we have a um, friend uh, in Japanese university uh, who has done an astonishing work many years ago that for human women, human female patients whose ovary uh, ceased its uh, egg production before, way before the normal age of menopause. The ovarian uh, follicular cells are sleeping in the ovary, so he took that ovary and then uh, waken up uh, the eggs with uh, some uh, specific uh, chemical uh, solutions and then did IVF and then generated a perfect, normal, healthy, as long as I understand, healthy uh, offspring. And then, so early menopause is actually ongoing, and it is coming to a um, social problem that uh, women uh, who in these days has a career and then don't marry and don't uh, give the first birth until 35 years old, for example, and then all of a sudden, the physician, the doctors tell them that, okay, sorry, but your ovary is depleted. There must be some reason why ovary is experiencing such a problem and like an early depression of the functional oocyte. And then <coughs> it is really an important thing that if you have a male and then if you receive, say, a cancer therapy, I'm working in the MGH Center for Cancer Research, so I, I see many um, cancer patients. And I, I, I'm not a physician, but yeah, I can see the patient. And then, look, if they are male and then they receive chemotherapy, before that, they may want to squeeze their sperm and freeze it so that they can get uh, their own children later. Females have a problem. If you are exposed to the very strong chemotherapy and then uh, you want to give a birth to your own child, probably you worry. Uh, that whether um, is that safe? I have received uh, chemotherapy and then I lost a lot of hair and then my can my cancer cells was gone, but uh, my body is damaged. Surprisingly, really, not many information uh, can be given to the patient whether your eggs are still safe or your eggs are quite bad. And then we are doing deep sequencing after irradiating mouth ovary and then uh, sequencing the paps. And then so far, our data suggests that the uh, radiation and the chemotherapy seems safe to the oocyte, 
but it's only story of a mouse. And then uh, in order to understand how human is affected, we are generating a cell culture model to figure out if there is any a method that we can establish uh, to guide human patients uh, whether their eggs are still safe or the choice whether they want to receive those uh, potentially risky therapy or not. <clears throat> that makes me think of something, um, and I'm just speculating, but perhaps in a woman's body, the eggs are in a protected state and somewhat isolated from the rest of the body, but then when she goes through menstruation, that you know maybe all the eggs are awakened in such a way that they are susceptible to um, you know to more outside influences. So and this is just again my speculation, but perhaps that's one reason why as a woman ages and she goes through more menstruation cycles, the eggs may have been exposed to more I don't know more insults or more um, stress from the environment. So I wonder if there's any correlation between women that you know, let's say start menstruation late or they for some reason have a longer cycle and less periods and if that affects their eggs, I don't know. Again, just speculation and thought. Yeah, so then uh, the fact is uh, with older age, uh, the chromosomal anomaly of the eggs or the uh, fetuses uh, increase, so that is known. We don't know whether that is because uh, of the accumulated effect of the environment or uh, is that because just simply a prolonged uh, uh, arrest of the egg to an, uh, in the middle of the uh, meiosis stage is going to cause the chromosomal anomaly. So it, it, partly, yes, with old age, uh, your chromosome has a higher risk uh, to get uh, abnormal, say, such as trisomy, uh, those kind of the chromosome anomaly. But at this moment, it is quite risky to say that it is caused by the accumulated uh, environmental uh, toxic materials. I am, my gut feeling is probably, but without identifying what are the, those chemical, uh, some risks are, and then uh, how can you convincingly prove that it's a very uh, big social impact statement. So I am, I am, it is only uh, my own thought, but it is not uh, very well say, uh, accepted uh, statement uh, in the field. Well, okay, so I got a question. Um, has it been studied the effect of chemotherapy on women that are in different stages of their cycle? Has that been studied to see what the effects are and how they are different? <laughs> so, the study uh, field is known as oncofertility. Oncofertility uh, specifically deals with uh, female patients who received chemotherapy and radiation therapy, so cancer therapy, and then uh, how their uh, eggs are safe. And, and then your question is, surprisingly, does not have a specific answer. So recruiting cycling females and then uh, study whether uh, any chemotherapy has an effect or not is really hard to uh, set up. 
And um, so I think that at least what I can say is uh, my hospital, Massachusetts General Hospital, which is one of the Harvard affiliated, affiliated hospital, the oncofertility chief, and I uh, quite intensively talked about that. And then I was surprised that she cannot offer any decent scientific knowledge about whether cycling women has a higher risk by chemotherapy or not. It is not known. Well, I mean, if, if, yeah, if you, if you think that, well, I mean, women are still worried and science still encourages, you know, men. Okay, let me back up. So science encourages men to bank their sperm before they have chemotherapy. So that's saying that an environmental insult, this just happens to be chemical, is going to, you know, that is going to cause problems with the sperm. So why wouldn't it do the same thing in women? And depending on the stage they are in their cycle, why wouldn't it have different effects? I mean, it sounds like, I don't know, there's like a fear of uh, even going down that path of thought for some reason. Maybe because uh, people are afraid that of going against Darwinism, that, it's, you know, it's, it only could be random mutations. But, uh, I mean, the whole science of epigenetics itself appears to be because of environmental stress causing changes to the genes, causing epigenetic changes. So what, why wouldn't that be a, a very likely or possible mechanism for change? Yeah, I think that it is. Um, it is actually uh, we have been uh, publishing papers uh, suggesting that environmental uh, effects are going, going to cause the uh, say germline uh, changes, such as <clears throat> if we expose mouse to uh, to the beauty routine, uh, which is an uh, environmental chemical, which is everywhere uh, in our daily lifestyle, and uh, the mouse, pregnant mice were exposed to tributary teen. And then their F1, next generation, which is F1, and next next generation, which is F2, and next 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 generation, F3, going on, males tend to be prone to get obesity, which means all those the, um, male mice whose grandma was exposed to that chemical, born normal and looks normal until they are challenged with high-fat diet. But when they uh, encounter high-fat diet, they become uh, obese rapidly, and then their body weight does not go goes back to the normal, even after uh, we change the uh, diet to the normal chore. And then we have uh, examined uh, their sperm by deep sequencing and epigenetic analysis, and then we see changes in the DNA methylation profile, but we still have a struggle of connecting those observed changes to the phenotype, which is, in this case, obesity. We can at least say that something bad is happening epigenetically to the germline, but unless, until we show how these uh, changes in the epigenetics exactly causes uh, the observed phenotype, it may be unrelated to different things, and then therefore we are still working on uh, to connect these uh, say, two things, epigenetic changes we can observe, and actual disease, in this case, uh, mouse obesity. Yeah, I had read that, you know, the scientist Weissman said there was a barrier between the somatic cells and the germ cells, but it doesn't appear that there is one. It doesn't appear that all the epigenetic marks are wiped out um, in the germ cell line. It seems like some are preserved. Otherwise, why would you get that effect of mice being obese because of an insult to their grandparents? 
Um, so then the Weissman's barrier is a very famous uh, scientific principle. And <coughs> the fact that we can generate germ cell-like cell line, a PGC, LC, germ cell-like cell culture model out of the IPS is already a violation of the Weissmann's barrier because IPS is definitely a somatic cell. <laughs> and then, therefore, um, the old days, Weissmann's barrier is a, uh, almost like a dogma. But uh, we are challenging that uh, the germ line uh, epigenetic uh, state may be affected uh, through the somatic cell effect of the environment. <coughs> At least in the nematodes, the uh, worm, the C. elegans, uh, the transgenerational epigenetic inheritance is a known fact. It is not a controversy. It is definitely approved by the community that it happens, and then people are picking up many uh, genes that are directly affecting that transgenerational epigenetic inheritance. The question right now is whether that actually happens in mammals, especially human, and if that is the case, what is the strongest evidence that we can offer? So that is the focus of uh, research of the transgenerational uh, disease inheritance. <clears throat> so what, um, what do you think it's going to take to prove heritable epigenetic changes? Um, it is a good question. <clears throat> Some people say that it should be DNA methylation, and I don't deny that. And some people say that it can be histone status. And some others are saying that potentially it is not necessarily the sperm, but epididymis, uh, which is the, uh, the, the tunnel, uh, the storage uh, place of the sperm, uh, may be affecting sperm to change uh, their uh, epigenetic uh, status. And recently, uh, people recognize that sperm contains histone quite significantly. Probably when I was a um, postdoc, uh, everybody agreed that the sperm does not have histone and that it has only protamine. But today, um, quite a significant amount of histones are present in sperm, and then therefore it may be uh, inheriting uh, epigenetic uh, information uh, from previous generation to the next. And eggs are um, uh, always within uh, women's body. So it is very difficult to access. And then the information about the epigenetic inheritance through the female germline is very limited. <clears throat> so probably, <laughs> so what we are trying to figure out is, other than DNA methylation, is there any changes such as three-dimensional changes in the architecture of the genome, like uh, Topologically associated domain, so-called TAD, uh, can be affected by uh, the environmental chemicals, and it, such effect can be non-specific. It is just deviation from the normal, but it may not go to any specific direction. But it may uh, show a common, pheno uh, common phenotype like uh, obesity, uh, if. 
energy metabolism is not optimal because of the damage to general structure, then the consequence may be we always feel hungry and they eat more, and uh, so-called thrifty phenotype, that one uh, always feel hungry even though their uh, blood glucose level is very high. Have we done a, a longitudinal study on um, on men, you know, sampling their sperm over a period of years and looking for epigenetic changes and genetic changes and other changes in the sperm? I mean, eggs would be harder to do, but have we at least done it with sperm? That area is not my specialty, um, although uh, I can see that many epidemiologists love to study uh, sperm methylation because sperm is easy to uh, access. And <clears throat> what I can say is that uh, I can see many studies and then many claims such as the changes of DNA methylation, etc. I think that many studies show the changes, but it cannot go beyond that, which means you cannot reproduce the specific change and the specific association to the disease, the uh, mechanistic explanation, why those changes cause these diseases. That part is largely lacking. So answering uh, your question, uh, I'm not an expert of the epidemiology, so I don't know exactly what is the largest or the best study of the human sperm DNA methylation. But um, I can at least say that uh, many dozens of studies, many, many studies have already been done. And then uh, some small suggestions or inconclusive uh, implications were obtained. And then we are still waiting for uh, some definitive answer uh, what exactly uh, is the major uh, cause of the uh, environmental uh, effect to the germ range index. <laughs> okay. So what's, um, what's your goal with your study of the primordial um, germline cells? What do you hope to elucidate or figure out in the near term? So we want to uh, generate uh, in vitro cell culture model of germline. My first goal is we want to know how the environmental chemicals, including the prescription drugs, can affect the germline. There are many drugs, uh, if you buy any drug in the, uh, over the counter, uh, it may say that, oh, this is not recommended to pregnant female, talk to your doctor. But I am MD, <laughs> and if somebody comes to me and then, hey, I want to know what will happen if I take, and if the pregnant woman comes to me, my answer is, I don't know. And then I actually called many pharmaceutical companies, uh, customer service, and their answer was almost always, they don't know. <laughs> and right now, some misconception is that many drugs, prescription drugs or over-the-counter says uh, this drug is not recommended to the uh, pregnant females. And only few of them were actually tested for their uh, teratogenicity or other bad effect. The vast majority of the drugs are not even tested. And they're simply saying that, well, we don't test it, we don't know the consequence, and therefore please don't use. <coughs> it it is... makes sense to be on the safe side, I guess, yeah. Sorry? To be on the safe side, it makes sense to do something like that. But, okay, continue. Yeah. So, in the safe side, um, it makes sense. But on the other hand, that means that 
we, we are just avoiding uh, all those drugs uh, to the uh, pregnant females, then you encounter the situation that you must use drugs such as cancer. And then, so if there is no other choice but use a drug, we want to know the safety. At least if there is a study showing drug A is more toxic to drug, uh, the germ line or human germ line than drug B, then we can inform pharmaceutical companies that, okay, looks like A and B are equally effective to the disease, but A is more toxic to the germ line, then they can think of uh, developing a better drug and uh, improve the safety. <laughs> so without any clue, uh, other than just giving that to the mouse, uh, there's no clue whether some drug uh, chemicals are toxic to human germ line. So our First goal is trying to make a model to screen the uh, environmental chemicals and major prescription drugs that can be given to uh, pregnant females or the young boys and girls, and then try to uh, try to establish some sort of the safety uh, criteria of the <clears throat> environmental chemicals and drugs. That's the first goal. The second goal is we want to um, generate a model of the testicular cancer using the uh, primordial germ cell. And here is a question. Uh, do you know uh, what is the most frequent cancer of young males in the United States? I don't, young males? Older young males, males, I guess, prostate, but young males, is it testicular cancer? Yes, <laughs> yeah, right. So if you are, say, 20 years old, and then you are almost free of cancer except for testicular cancer. So in between 15 to 35 years old males, the most frequent cancer is testicular cancer. Testicular cancer is uh, direct, uh, directly derived from the germ line. And studies show strong evidence that the testicular cancers are malignancy of primordial germ cell directly. And then, therefore, oh. sorry? Okay, I'm listening. Yeah. So, by some reason, primordial germ cells uh, cannot differentiate normally to the germ line and stay in the testes for many years and then eventually uh, form testicular cancer. And half of those testicular cancers are so-called seminomas. Morphologically and marker expression really look like human primordial germ cells themselves. Very similar. And then there are a number of genes that are suggested to be uh, relevant to the testicular cancer uh, carcinogenesis. So we are engineering uh, IPS uh, pluripotent cells uh, with CRISPR-Cas9 and lentivirus vectors to express active oncogene and knock out uh, tumor suppressor genes to mimic uh, human testicular cancer and then try to figure out if genetic factors can actually generate testicular cancer. The Background of this is testicular cancer is a very strange cancer. It is one of the, uh, among human cancers, the testicular cancer's genetic contribution is one of the most strongest. So if your brother has a testicular cancer, 
the risk that you have a testicular cancer is very, very high. <coughs> okay. And then, therefore, genetically, it is very strongly as a, uh, affected. However, testicular cancer is shown, uh, very often shows uh, quite local and time-dependent increase in its incidence. Right now, today, in the United States, we are experiencing unexplained strong surge of the testicular cancer in the Latino population. So no, nobody is, is knows... Is there any... No one knows why? Nobody knows why. And the, the study came out of the uh, National Cancer Institute, NCI's epidemiology group, who has been watching a testicular cancer incidence for several decades already. And then they published the paper demonstrating that Latinos, U.S. Latinos, uh, testicular cancer incidence is rapidly increasing. And without any explanation, but it's a fact. So I called the author, uh, Catherine McGrain, and then directly asked her the, what the, her thoughts. And then she said that it can be environmental endocrine disruptor, but no strong evidence uh, can support only because the study is incomplete. And then therefore, epidemiologically, there is very strange increase right now, but nobody can explain. And by the way, in the past 30 years, three decades, 30 years, testicular cancer incidence is increasing in almost all of the industrial country and surprisingly 1% by, per year. Every year incidence increases by 1%. <laughs> Yeah, which simply means that the, the testicular cancer incidence uh, was effectively doubled in the past uh, century. That's crazy. Hmm. It's crazy. And then many people try to explain that, oh, it's a change in the diagnosis, so oh, it's a change in the uh, criteria, pathology, whatsoever. Everything was uh, examined, and then conclusion is, no, there is a real increase. Hmm. And then this therefore, the, um, yeah. And then, therefore, what we want to do is uh, to generate uh, PGC-like cell out of the iPS cells with gene modification to mimic actual cancer, and then see if the genetic factor only can generate cancer, or do we need additional environmental factor to make them really cancer. On the other hand, we are generating uh, iPS cells from testicular cancer which sounds confusing, but this is another story. We can convert uh, cancer cells into iPS cells. So let's convert testicular cancer cell into iPS, then make PGC-like cell out of those iPS. Those iPS-derived PGCs must contain all cancer-relevant mutations because originally it was from cancer, so it should contain every cancer-relevant mutations. And then the question is, are these new PGC-like cells already cancer or they are normal? Huh. Interesting. Okay. I guess yeah. that's going to be an interesting experiment. Yeah. So then that will test uh, whether only genetic factor can cause testicular cancer or something else is necessary. <clears throat> anyway, so then... What about, my um, what about looking at, um, you said testicular cancer is on the rise. I've heard this about other ailments. 
you know, um, is it possible for you to find out a survey of, you know, 10, 15, 20 different ailments that appear to be on the rise and see if there's any correlation, you know, with te testicular cancer and with what you're working on? Maybe that would give you a different view of mechanisms or possibilities. That is, um, we are trying to generate preliminary data that we can actually do uh, such a study. And then uh, we are going to ask for funding or support uh, for a bigger study involving uh, those epidemiology linked to molecular biology and genomics uh, to figure out. We are not yet at uh, that stage, but that is actually uh, the major goal that we want to go. Okay. Yeah. And the, <coughs> sorry. So overall, um, we want to generate a germline model out of the human uh, IPS cells so that we can understand uh, the risk of the germline. What is the risk of cancer? What is the risk of germline depletion? Or what is the uh, risk of the germline anomaly? And also germline mutations. So we don't we don't have any handle on that versus uh, somatic cells that go through all these, these issues too. There's yeah. no comparison. So Richard, do you know uh, he Jiankui? Uh no, no. Okay, he Jiankui uh, is a Chinese scientist who claimed that he actually did the gene editing uh, therapy of a twin, uh, and then. So it was a very big news in the. Oh, that's right. Okay. Yeah. Do you know what did, that? What did he do? He mod he modified them um, so that they would be born what resistant to AIDS. Is that, what yes, was the modification that, that he did? Yeah, yeah, that one, that one. Yes. <laughs> okay. So um, technologically, uh, probably he was able to do that, and then again, only a hypothetical technology. Someone uh, can generate human fertilization-ready germline uh, out of the skin cells. So the baby from skin cells is technically possible, probably not more, not, not greater than 10 years, I would say, the five years also technologically, it should be possible. But then the big question is, is that really safe? Because I am handling the human IPS cells every single day, it's very hard uh, cells to maintain. It's complete no, uh, normal state. At the beginning of this conversation, we introduced uh, primed versus naive pluripotent stem cell. And then we have uh, recently published with our colleague, Conrad Hosteringer. Uh, Conrad is a uh, uh, corresponding author, and then I did the genome analysis part of that. What we found was human uh, and mouse iPS cells, primal status iPS cells maintain its normal chromosome quite nicely, but naive pluripotency cells rapidly show chromosomal anomaly. It's very rapid, and uh, it is going to be a problem <coughs> for the uh, safe uh, production of the tissues. And unfortunately, germline uh, cannot be generated from the prime with safer pluripotency. It cannot. Only from the naive pluripotency uh, iPS cells, we can generate uh, 
apply model as a PGC like cell model. And my uh, own study is I have shown that we can maintain iPSs in the safe pluripotency and only 48 hours of conversion into the naive status we can uh, generate primordial germ cells. Previous studies have shown that you need to maintain cells up to, say, two weeks in the naive pluripotency and then uh, convert into the uh, primordial cells. But with our protocol, uh, we can maintain PGC-like cells uh, in the safer uh, chromosome status. Uh, primed status, and then uh, only minimum length of the time we convert them into the uh, dangerous, naive state, and then immediately put them into the PGC. And with that, uh, I think that uh, we have our system has advantage to maintain safe and normal uh, chromosome. Uh, in the PGC access, and that is a major importance of my own cancer study, because if we generate chromosome anomaly as an IPS cell culture artifact, um, it, doesn't make, it does not make sense to study the cancer out of them. What, what is the difference between a primed and a naive stem cell um, on the genetic level and the epigenetic level? So they have different are, susceptibility to, to insult, but you know, what are the other differences? There are um, a number of differences. Uh, if I go through one by one, uh, it, I need three hours. But the, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then perhaps the easiest way to explain is the naive prepotency in vivo in the real human body. It is only a transient state. Okay, only a few hours, I would uh, not not a day even, uh, several hours, I, uh, inner cell mass uh, gain naive pluripotency in vivo and then rapidly differentiate. And then the primed pluripotency, on the other hand, uh, lasts longer and then the cells proliferate in that particular state. Epigenetically, uh, IMS, the inner cell mass type of the naive pluripotency is more demonstrated than the uh, primed status. This is our hypothesis that too much demonstration of the chromosome is the risk of chromosomal anomaly. So in vivo, in the real life, the disk is limited only for a few hours. But in the cell culture, if we maintain artificially uh, for a long period of time in the naive pluripotency, then the, we experience as a chromosomal anomaly. And then we are trying to figure out if the too much demonstration uh, is a major cause of the uh, chromosomal anomaly in the naive pluripotency. It's an well, what causes uh yeah, what causes the cell to go from naive to primed? Is it cell to cell signaling from other cells? Is it just something internal within one cell? I mean, how does it happen? <clears throat> so naive and um primed pluripotency are mutually interchangeable, only changing the cell culture media and the growth factor cocktail plus uh, the uh, several uh, chemical inhibitors of protein kinases. <laughs> so in these days, I think that uh, we have 
4i, which means four chemical inhibitors, or 5i, five different chemical inhibitors, such as GSK3B2 and uh, P38, Junkinase JNK. And so those uh, kinase inhibitor cocktail plus growth factor uh, to maintain the survival of the cells uh, can convert uh, primed status to naive status. And then after the naive status changing back to the primed status media, then they degain the primed status. It is relatively rapid change. And um, for complete conversion, probably we need two weeks. But for my study shows that uh, as short as 48 hours, uh, primed apripotency can gain uh, germline competence within 48 hours. <coughs> in, uh, in vivo, you know, in the body of a creature, um, is there only the transition from naive to primed? Is there ever primed back to naive transition? Or that only happens when you have a, you know, sperm and egg meat? I think that uh, inner cell mass is uh, naive, and then it differentiates into primed, which is an epiblastocell, so that is one way, never comes back again. And the, the germline is a unique set of the uh, cells, because it is not somatic, and it is, you know, the... Uh, Pluripotency, people say that three germ layer, which is ectoderm, endoderm, or mesoderm, but they forget germline because germline is not belonging to any of these three layers. And so then, uh, the true pluripotency is epi, uh, it, true pluripotency must show differentiation to ectoderm, endoderm, mesoderm, and germline. <coughs> Four uh, different uh, cell types, and the germline cells express a lot of pluripotent stem cell markers, and the PGC germ cells, mouse germ cells, can easily reconvert it back to the pluripotent state, which is known as embryonal germ cells. E.g., embryonal germ cells. It is another uh, stable pluripotent stem cells. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So in terms of the marker in terms of the marker expression, the primordial germ cells look like really uh pluripotent. But as long as uh the definition of the potency it is monopotent, which means PGC's only goal is to become germline, not anything else. So it is monopotent, it is uh, committed in vivo. I guess there's still so much to understand about how this happens and how the priming occurs and how once the priming happens, how the cell knows which pathway to go along and, you know. Yeah, yeah. I think that, um, so biological interest is uh, how those molecular mechanisms switch prime and uh, the naive and uh, germline like potencies, how epigenetically they are degraded and interchangeable. That is, from the true basic biology standpoint, it is interesting. On the other hand, on the other hand, from the industry viewpoint, it is important to figure out how to make safe uh, IPAs-derived uh, tissues or cells that can be useful to, for the human therapeutics. <clears throat> 
so yeah, I understand why you're making these primordial uh, germline cells because there's a lot to be learned from them. Mm-hmm. Very good. Yeah. Yeah, so many people are working on the neurons and the hepatocytes and the pancreas. And then uh, because of my interest in the uh, environment and transgenerational effect, I have chosen to uh, jump into the PGC-like cell uh, cell culture model. <coughs> well, very good. Well, Toshi, what's, what's the best way for people to uh, to find out more, you know, without blowing their heads up on the complication? But you know, to find out more about uh, your work and your lab, how can they get in contact? Okay. So I am welcome to uh, contact or uh, say my email address, you know that. And then so um, yes. people can uh, read our uh, paper published in 2017, uh, PNAS. And also uh, people can contact me by email, and that is probably, probably the best way. And I am welcome uh, to talk about how to uh, use, uh, say, PGCLC for the monitoring the safety and the jump cell and especially um, I am I'm seeking for an opportunity to talk to the industry people who are interested in the uh, safety measurement of their product if there is uh, any concern that their product can be used by pregnant women and then just want to make sure that their product is at least testable or tested for the germline safety, uh, probably uh, we can talk uh, together and then set up uh, some sort of the uh, collaborative work. Now, that would be great. Okay. Well, very good. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you very much for this opportunity. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40... I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials, or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. You know Remember, however, this podcast and content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.